going on trail and ultra runners welcome to another episode of the coop cast i hope this podcast finds you well whether you are out on the trails running you're in your car during a commute or you just happen to be getting ready for work or the day in general i appreciate everybody tuning in to this episode on today's podcast we have the young the up and coming the incredibly incredibly stylish with his soon-to-be trademark bandana that I am sure is going to hit the Paris fashion runways by storm this coming summer, Jackson Brill, who is a student at the University of Colorado, and he is also a Solomon runner, and he is also one of our former interns, one of the better interns that we've ever had, and I've actually had a lot of them. But the real reason that we wanted to bring Jackson on the podcast today is because he has done a unique piece of research in conjunction with his undergraduate honor study studies at the University of Colorado, where he looked at this confounding question that trail and ultra runners all over the world have to confront on almost every single run that they do. And that is, is it better to walk or is it better to run up this hill? And to be frank with everybody, we don't have really good answers for that. The research hasn't really uncovered a good answer to when you should walk and when you should run. Should you base it off a heart rate? Should you base it off of grade? Should you base it off of speed? Should you base it off of just dumb luck? We honestly really don't, we really don't know. We know what that means in a flat level condition. Researchers have studied that for decades, but we don't know what that means in an uphill condition, which is extremely relevant for trail and ultra runners. And so he happened, just happened to do some research during his undergraduate studies to better explain and to better illuminate this very topic. And we dive into a lot of that uh, on this very podcast. So you guys listen up, buckle down. Here we go. Here's my conversation with Jackson Brill about should you run or should you walk that hill in front of you? Let's kind of kick things off because I think what you've been like the problem that you've been trying to solve in your in some of your undergraduate honors uh, studies is a kind of a common problem with a lot of ultra runners out there is they're trying to determine like when it's better to run and when it's better to walk on the uphills. And we've all had this experience where we're in a big race and there's a lot of people around and you're climbing up some climb and you can look ahead of you, behind you, to the left and to the right and half the people are walking and half the people are running, but they're all going the same speed. And I think inevitably whenever, when anybody does this, the more and more people look around, the more and more people start intuitively walking because they look, they look to their left and say, oh, this guy or this girl's walking, I might as well start to walk. And they look up the, up the mountain. They're like, oh, that person ahead of me is walking. What I, I should be walking as well. But how, like, how did you initially kind of become interested in studying this? Yeah. So as, as you know, and I guess hopefully the listeners will now know, I, I live in Boulder, uh, Colorado, and we've got a lot of steep climbs where uh, in a lot of cases, walking is the most efficacious gait to choose. 
you know, some of the steep climbs like Fern Canyon and, and Shadow Canyon up some of the peaks. And, uh, and then, you know, there's some, some more moderate stuff where, yeah, it's, it's not super well known which, which you should do. And, you know, I'll go out for a run with a friend and I might be running and they might be walking or vice versa. And inevitably it leads to conversation. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think this is a, a, the conversation of, you know, when should you run? When should you walk? Oh, do you run that climb or do you walk this climb? It's a conversation I think most of us have had. Yeah. And I, I can tell that you have been studying and thinking about this a lot because you intentionally use the word efficacious and not, I know you're laughing because you know where I'm going with this and you didn't use the word efficient or economical. And this, this starts, this, this becomes a really good like launch point into what you were specifically studying. Why don't we kind of broadly give a broad overview to what we know about the run to walk transition and these two, these kind of two different points that you initially started to look at, which is the preferred walk to run transition, which is what, what people just naturally start doing. And then the, well, you can describe that. You can describe the second one since you, uh, since, since you've studied it. And I think it, I, I think it, I think it, uh, also is related to the, like the specific phraseology you were earlier using. Yeah. So there's been a lot of research done on flat terrain, uh, about, uh, when it's best to switch what speed it's best to switch from walking to running at. Uh, and, you know, and as you mentioned, that's the preferred transition speed or, or one of the transition speeds is the preferred transition speed. And that's, that's the speed at which slower than on average people prefer to walk and faster than people prefer to run. And up until I, some, like somewhere in the, the 1980s or early, early 90s, people just assume that that preferred transition speed was also the speed uh, that was most economical to switch at. So slower than the preferred transition speed, walking would have a lower energy cost than running, and faster than the preferred transition speed, running would have a lower energy cost. But then, then in the late 80s, early 90s, they started realizing that there's actually a difference between when people preferred to switch gates and when it was actually the most economical to do so. So the preferred transition speed is, is there's, you don't really have to uh, you know, measure anything in a lab in the sense that you don't have to measure you know, anyone's oxygen or uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, but, but, there, but so yeah, preferred transition is it's just an, based on... It's an observational study, I think is what right. you're getting at. And they've done it all over the world. They've gone to different, you know, corners, all, almost all six out of seven continents and just observed people walking down the street, walking through malls, walking kind of to church or wherever, and they can measure their speed while they're doing that and aggregate all of this data. And as you mentioned, it's not a physiological phenomenon that they're looking at. They're, they're simply looking, they're simply observing people in what speeds they prefer to walk at and the transition with which they start to, they start to become, they start to actually run. Right. And yeah, so, so that preferred transition speed in the 1990s, some of the researchers began realizing that's different than the speed that it's energetically um, optimal to switch at. 
So there's this disconnect between the preferred transition speed in humans and the energetically optimal transition speed in humans. Yeah. So on, on, on flat train, the preferred transition speed is about uh, a 13 and a half minute mile. So slower than 13 and a half minutes per mile, people would generally prefer to walk and faster than um, a 13 and a half minute mile, humans would generally prefer to run. But if your goal is to minimize how much energy uh, you're burning, if your goal is to just conserve energy, then the act, then the speed that you should switch at is a 12 minute mile. So there's this there's this disconnect where you know let's say you're you're moving forward at a uh, a 13 minute mile. Uh, most people would prefer to be running at a 13 minute mile, despite the fact that running is actually the more expensive gait. Yeah. It, it's interesting that it's interesting, uh, again, the way that you phrase that, because a lot of the times in biomechanics and physiology research, we tend to oversimplify concepts with bioenergetics. And we tend to look at things like running and locomotion economy as this sole driver of what humans do. And so much so that it becomes, I, I, my personal opinion is, I think it becomes a, a, an overly narrow focal point for coaches and phys- physiologists to like boil down things like performance and, you know, and, 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 and the whole host of like battery of aspects that we're working on with athletes. And that's not to say that running and walking economy is unimportant, but it's not the solely important thing. So needless to say, the discrepancy between the, the preferred uh, run to walk transition and the energetically associated run to walk transition, those are different. And that points out that there are other things that are going on within this run to walk transition that are not related to the bioenergetics or the energy cost. So why don't you go ahead and explain what some of those things the, I guess the the right way to put this would maybe because it's not fully, you know, it hasn't been fully flushed out in the research quite yet. Yeah, no. And I think you, you bring up a good, a good point where I think definitely on the practical side of things, coaches and athletes very much look at, at training and stuff from this, this energetic lens. You know, I think we're all familiar with terms such as VO2 or VO2 max, you know, lactate threshold, you know, running economy, and we're maybe less, uh, as a, as a, as a broad statement, like we, we understand less about the biomechanics of, of, of locomotion and of, of performance. So, so yeah, I think you bring up a good point that, yeah, a lot of people do look at this mainly from this energetic lens and the fact that there is this disconnect between what people prefer to do and what's energetically optimal shows that, um, shows that just looking at things from this energetic lens is, is a little too, um, simple. So, so yeah, when, um, so yeah, because there's this disconnect between those two, uh, speed transition speeds, um, a lot of researchers have looked at the, the biomechanics of, uh, of running and walking to see if, if that can explain the difference. So there's been a lot of research done on, um, differences in muscle activity and the way different muscles are activated and the, the patterns of when muscles are on and off. They've looked at, uh, how joints move, uh, they've looked you know, the, the joint forces, ground reaction forces, they've looked at, uh, joint velocities and joint accelerations. So looking at these more biomechanical parameters that 
aren't looking at the energy cost from this global whole body perspective, but looking at it more centered around a specific muscle or a specific joint. And, and there's been, again, like you mentioned, the, there isn't a scientific consensus on flat train. What's triggering the, the um, gait transition to occur at the speed that it does, but uh, there's been a lot of evidence. It's more of a biomechanical phenomena. Yeah. And some of the theories that get thrown around, as you mentioned, might be due to specific muscles, but also this overall biomechanical load is the way that I'm going to, is that I'm going to, the way that I'm going to actually describe it, that there's some phenomenon, as you mentioned, around the joints, around the musculature that signals to the brain, Hey, you better start running versus walking right now. Cause it's easier for us, even though it's not energetically optimal. That's part of right. the theory at least. Right. So there's, uh, the tibialis interior, which is the, the muscle at the front of the shin. There's been a lot of research, uh, that finds that that's a lot more active in walking than in running. So, uh, a lot of the research that's been done has concluded that you're basically that shin, that muscle at the front of the shin, that tibialis interior is overexerted when you're walking at fast speeds. And that the reason why we switch to running is because then the front of your shin, that muscle is, is less, uh, less active and thus, um, isn't in a state of overexertion once you switch to running. So it's, so that'd be almost like a limiting factors approach, right? There's a muscular limiting factor to that form of locomotion to where your body says, Hey, listen, this one, this one specific action with this one specific muscle is going to get overloaded past a certain speed. And then therefore that is signaling to your brain to transition to a run, even though it's more energetically expensive, which is kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting hypothesis, right? That, that one specific muscle or the power around one specific joint could control things so that it would drive you to a less economical form of locomotion. Right. Yeah. And if we, if we keep looking at, at that specific, um, tibialis anterior muscle, it's not a large muscle. Right. So, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the reasons why it, it wouldn't be contributing to the energetic, the global whole body energetic cost is because, okay, even if it's, even if we could look at, um, the energetic cost of that specific muscle and see that it's a lot higher in walking than running, you know, it's such it just ha doesn't have as much muscle mass as some of the muscles like the glutes and the quads and the hamstrings. So, um, which are going to contribute to the overall energetic cost, uh, of locomotion more. So like, let's, let's say, and there's been some research that shows this, the quadriceps, you know, this big muscle, uh, that's, that contribute a lot to, to energetic cost. Let's say they're 2% more active in running than walking, but the tibialis interior is, 20% more active in walking than running that that small difference, uh, in the quadriceps is going to potentially have a larger con contribution to the energetic cost than that really large difference, uh, in the tibialis interior. And that's, that's been one of the, one of the thoughts as to why there's that disconnect is maybe these big muscles are a little more active in running than walking, but the difference is so small. It doesn't contribute to your feeling of, uh, of fatigue and exertion while that big difference in the smaller muscle, um, is, is, you know, you, you can recognize that discomfort in walking. Yeah. So it, it, it's this, this area has been fascinating to me because we've been describing two points, right? We've been describing this 
preferred walk to run transition speed where humans just instinctively prefer to run versus walk. And we've been, uh, and we've been describing this, uh, more energy, uh, energetically, uh, favorable run to walk transition, which is the, which is the energetically optimal transition speed, uh, as, as defined in the research. But really when we think about it, if we think about it as athletes and coaches, there's really a third variable or there's really a third speed that takes into consideration not only those two points, but all, also a whole host of ones. And that's really the strategic transition point for an athlete to actually use while they're out there in the field. And that has a little bit to do with energetics. It has a little bit to do with biomechanics. It has a little bit to do with strategy and probably 30 other variables that we could eventually tease out if we had enough time and resource to actually do so. And this third transition speed that you're talking about, there's no research on it. We have no idea uh, what speed is the correct speed to um, to transition gates at uh, if the goal is to just go as fast as you can. Yep. Because it, you know, we don't know if what people are preferring to do will make them go the fastest. We don't know if uh, if what makes people the most energetically, um, if yeah, like the most economical is the, uh, results in the best speed or yeah. if it's somewhere in between, or if it's somewhere yeah. even slower, even faster than either of them. So, uh, the, yeah. the way that I normally boil it down to a practical standpoint though, is one way to look at it is through the energetics. Like if your goal of part of your overriding strategy in an ultra marathon type of event is to minimize the energetic cost of going from point A to point B, mile one to mile 50, mile one to kilometer 100, mile one to, to 100. If that's a big overarching strategy, you sure as heck would be well served to steer towards this energetically optimal transition speed, whatever that is at whatever grade. But if part of your overarching strategy is to essentially preserve the musculature and to try to spread the load around, which is not a really scientific term, but a lot of people understand that they want to be able to spread the load around, then this run to walk transition as we're going uphill, it, it, it takes on a little bit of a different context because you're using it to spare the local fatigue at the level of the muscles even at the expense of, in a lot of cases, even at the expense of extra energy, extra oxygen, extra calories and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think if we look at why people use poles and ultras, uh, it's generally not to be more economical. It's to just keep their muscles from getting too tired. Uh, you know, as, as you're, or yeah. So, um, so right. It's, you, whether whether it's better to be more economical or to save certain muscles from being overexerted, uh, determining which is you know which will result in the better performances, yeah. it, that's hard hard research to do. I uh, know exactly. <laughs> okay, we're we're going to try to stay off of polls for a little bit. We might be able to come back on another podcast and talk about that. <laughs> let's let's kind of let's let's leave it there and 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 come to the consensus that the right or the correct 
run to walk transition and how you determine it in the arena of trail and ultra running is undetermined. And it's a lot of, it's a lot based on the individual. Let's dive in a little bit more into the research that you specifically did for your honors thesis. What was the, what was the primary question that you were trying to answer with the research that you did? Yeah, so the primary, uh, yeah, what we were primarily trying to do was determine how transition speed, uh, both preferred transition speed and energetically optimal transition speed, how that was affected by incline. Uh, Because all the, everything we've talked about up to this point uh, has been mainly about uh, when to transition on flat terrain. But if, if we're again, looking at it from the practical point of view, that's not really that interesting to, to trail and ultra runners. You know, we're, we're generally able to move fast enough that on flat train we're able to run. Uh, so, so I was more curious about looking at it in an in incline, um, on, on inclines, because that's actually where trail and ultra runners will walk. Yeah. So set the experiment up. Why don't you just describe the research protocol, who you brought into the lab, what it looked like and things like that. And then we'll go over what you actually found out. Sounds good. So, uh, we looked at four different inclines. Uh, we looked at, uh, a flat, so, uh, 0% grade. We looked at, uh, five degrees or, uh, 8.7% incline. We looked at, uh, 10 degrees or 17.6%. And then finally we looked at 15 degrees or 26.8%. So I, I'll keep it to percent from here on out, uh, for the, for the sake of that's probably what most people understand, uh, intuitively. So yeah, uh, zero, zero percent, nine percent, 18 percent and 27 percent grade. And we were looking at, uh, subjects preferred transition speed and energetically optimal transition speed, at each of those four inclines. And uh, because most athletes don't have the ability to determine their energetic cost uh, in the field, you know, I don't, I don't think really any of us have just a spare portable metabolic heart that we, you know, take running with us. So we also looked at heart rate uh, to see if heart rate uh, could serve as a good um, proxy for either of these two transition speeds. And you, let, let's describe the experiment protocol first. So describe the subjects that you brought into the protocol, because I think this is actually important, it, like Im- important in terms of the protocol itself. Yeah. So our subjects consisted of um, 10 pretty elite uh, male trail and mountain runners. So uh, the reason why we kind of kept it to the pointy end of the, um, of the field was because it's really hard to actually find people who are fit enough to, to run fairly comfortably at that, uh, 27%, uh, percent incline. So, um, that's why we ended up being a bit elitist in our, uh, in our subject pool. Which is, I mean, that's standard protocol for a lot of exercise physiology and a lot of biomechanics studies where you're looking at elite males and I assume they're college age males too. Yeah, I, not necessarily college stage. It was, uh, I was probably the youngest subject, uh, at 21 and the oldest subject was 40. Okay. So it was right. more just, uh, local, good. local badasses I know in Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. Boulder has this, you know, pretty good research subject group there just because of your populations. Okay. So you had these four different, you had these four different grades that you were, 
that you were studying runners at 0%, 8.7%, 17.6%, and then 20, 20, we'll round up to the nearest percent. How's that? Yep. And to give the listeners a little bit of a perspective on what those different inclines would be like in the real world. 0% is obviously flat, right? Track, road, bike path, things like that. 9%, your first, your, uh, your first condition. That would be, that would be roughly like, I think the way that you were describing it is, is, uh, Chapman drive or bear Canyon there in Boulder. Um, it would be shallower than the Pikes peak ascent which is about 11 or 12%. So anyway, a, a hefty grade, not too serious, but a hefty grade. Yeah, most, next- most, most people will be running that grade uh, in a shorter distance race or if the climb isn't that long. That's a good, that's another good perspective. Okay. So your next, uh, your next condition, roughly 18%. What are we going to, what's our, what's our analog for that? Yeah, so uh, 18% would be pretty steep. Uh, I think, what was the, you have the, um, what I said was similar to it. Why yeah, don't you say that? It's the front side of Green Mountain via Ranger and Gregory. That's a, that, that most mere mortals is going, they're going to walk that. Yeah, on a long, on a long climb, uh, most people will, will walk that are in the context of an ultra marathon they'll walk uh, a grade that steep. But yeah. if, uh, if the climb is, you know, only a few minutes long or uh, if it's a shorter race, like maybe a, a vertical kilometer or something like that, yep. uh, some people would still, a, a fair amount of people would still be running. Okay. And also for athletes that have done the Leadville Trail 100, it's, almo- it's almost as steep as the backside of Hope Pass. 18 and 18% grade steeper than the front side. Front side has a little bit less climbing just because the way it's set up backside. It's, it's, it's pretty darn close. So that's your third condition. Hope pass green mountain via uh, ranger or Gregory, your last condition. This is where it starts to get hard. So this is 20, uh, 27% grade. And uh, I'd have a hard time finding something that's a 27% grade, but I think that, uh, uh, the Cunningham climb on the hard rock course in the clockwise direction. So it's the very last climb with 10 kilometers to go. That's about like a 30 or 28% grade, depending upon where you're actually marking it from. But my point with that is, is, is the steeper parts of hard rock is going to be right. about a 27, 28, 30% grade, which is your last condition. Almost in a, in a real world situation, hardly any runners are going to be running that except for the best of the best. And that's when they're going hard. Right. Yeah. So, um, headwaters Ridge, uh, which is one of the steeper climbs at the rut is, is similar, a comparable grade to, to that 27%. So, right. Yeah. It's, it's, we're looking at very steep, um, that right in the context of a multi-hour race, uh, on technical terrain, potentially at a higher altitude, people are probably aren't going to be running that. So, um, so the lens that you're looking at this through with these four conditions, 0% is obviously runnable for almost everybody. That's your yep. first condition. 8.7% is runnable, but hard for, for, for almost everybody, especially if you, if the climb is a little bit shorter, your third condition, 18%, that's like a coin flip. 
you know, should you run it? Should you walk it? You know, depends on how good the athlete is, how long the climb is and things like that. And then your last condition, unless you're going as hard as you can, almost everybody should be walking that. Is that, is that kind of philosophically where you were setting those, uh, where you're set, where you're setting those slopes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're spanning the, we're spanning the range of inclines between where nearly everyone's going to walk and or on flat train where nearly everyone's going to run and on steep train where nearly everyone's going to walk. So yeah, looking at that, that practical range. Okay. And I think this is a good point to interject here. The lab that you guys have there at the university of Colorado is one of the few labs in the world that are, that is, that's capable of research like this. And I'm not, and I don't know how you obviously didn't max out your steep incline, uh, treadmill, but there aren't a lot of other labs in the world that are set up to do these really steep incline studies because the equipment, the, the treadmill literally doesn't exist to go that high. Right. Yeah. So our lab, we boast the steepest treadmill in the world and we actually didn't use it for this study. Oh, you didn't? Um, oh, okay. No, we used, we actually just used, uh, an old treadmill from, uh, that's probably four or five times older than I am. <laughs> That's a bit of an exaggeration, but, uh, but definitely this, this pretty old treadmill. Um, but yeah, we, we have another treadmill that has the ability to go up to a 45 degree, um, incline, which is 100% grade where you're actually, um, you're climbing just as much as you're moving forward. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we, but yeah, we didn't, we weren't looking that steep because you should probably just walk if it's that steep. <laughs> I guess it would be better to say the future of this research as you expand on how difficult you can make the research conditions would be contingent upon your steep incline treadmill. Yeah, I mean, so the the research we were trying to do um, this transition speed research on our third uh, at thirty degrees on our steep treadmill, and we just couldn't find anyone who was uh, fit enough to to actually run. Um, at a speed where, uh, it was more economical to do so. So I, there was one day, uh, a few summers ago where they just put me on that treadmill and pushed me as hard as I could until I was on the verge of collapsing. And, uh, and still I, I, I wasn't fit enough to, um, to reach a fast enough speed where, where running made any sense. Okay. So l- let's get back to the, let's get back to the research protocol first, right? We've got these four grades yeah. flat, not very steep, sort of steep, super steep. We'll call them that, right? And we'll use a colloquial definition. What did you take each of the subjects through to determine what these run to walk transitions looked like? Yeah. So first uh, we determined their preferred transition. So just uh, not doing any sort of fancy, uh, not doing any sort of fancy lab measurements, but just de- determining the speed at which uh, they just chose on their own to transition gates at. So, um, to do that, we, uh, we had to average their run to walk and walk to run transitions. So, um, for the run to walk transition, we started the treadmill at a very fast speed, um, that subjects, you know, undoubtedly preferred to run at. And then we slowly lowered the speed of the treadmill until eventually they told us, Oh, you know, that's a speed that now I want to walk at. And then we did the opposite for the walk to run transition, start the treadmill very slow subjects wanted to walk incrementally increase the speed of the treadmill until eventually, Oh, that's fast enough where now I want to run. So we, so we determined that that preferred transition speed, uh, across all four of those, uh, inclines. And then we did the same thing, uh, for their energetically optimal transition speed. 
So uh, to determine to determine their energetically optimal transition speed was a little bit more difficult. We had to uh, we had to have subjects uh, both walk and run for five minutes uh, at three different speeds, uh, and then we plotted the energetic cost of both gates for those three speeds, and then we had to crunch crunch some numbers and do some math and uh, you know create a an equation for how how the energetic cost of running and the energetic cost of walking changed as a result of speed. And we had to do that then for each incline. So we were plotting these linear regression uh, lines for walking and running for all, all 10 subjects, all four inclines. So 40 different total conditions. Uh, and then the intersection point between walking and running uh, for each of those 40 conditions uh, you know, was, was the energetically optimal transition speed. So we collected, collected all of those uh, and then as part of those energetic trials, we also uh, collected heart rate data uh, to see how heart rate, uh, to see if heart rate was, um, was a good proxy for energetic cost. Okay. So, so now you've got these three points, right? You've got the point across all of your different conditions, right? Your flat condition, your sort of steep condition, your really steep condition, the super steep condition. You've got the preferred run to walk to run transition across all I mean, the, just the preferred transition. Yeah. The speed, preferred, so, the, prefer, the yeah. preferred transition speed. Thank you for correcting me. That's correct. The preferred transition. This is why you're in school and I've been out of school for 20 years. <laughs> you have the preferred transition speed across all the conditions. So that's the one where the, where the subjects say, say, Hey, listen, I no longer want to walk. I'm going to start running vice versa. Yep. You have the energetically optimal transition speed which you've taken from a metabolic cart across all of those different conditions. And then you also have the heart rate that's correlated to one or both, or both of those conditions. So, so that, I mean, that's what we were testing. So we, we collected the, the heart rate data at the same time as the energetic trials. Okay. And then after the fact, we're going to see, um, see how, um, the heart rate response compared to, um, to the other, to the preferred and the energetically optimal transition okay, speed. Perfect. So we, we've known, let's try to summarize the old research and then your research. We've known that the preferred transition speed and flat level walking is different than the energetically optimal transition speed. Yes, we went through, we went through that at the beginning. Yeah. And that's extremely well established. It's extremely well established. Does that ex- extremely well established point or points hold true as according to, according to the research that you did as the grade change, meaning are those points still apart or do they start to converge as the grade increases? Right. So I think there's been maybe only, there's only been one study in the past that looked at both preferred transition speed and energetically optimal transition speed on inclines. And they, they were looking at, um, less steep inclines, uh, so, so yeah, our research really was groundbreaking in terms of how steep, uh, how steep we we're looking at, um, both the preferred and energetically optimal transition speeds. So, uh, yeah, zero degrees, right. We saw what we expected to, the preferred transition speed was slower than the energetically optimal transition speed. We continued to see that at, uh, at 9%. We continued, continued to see that at 18%. And then when we got to the 27% grade, we actually saw that the average preferred transition speed 
and energetically optimal transition speed converged and there wasn't a difference between the two anymore uh, on average. So yeah, so so rather interesting meaning and this would imply, and I think we should add the caveat that small subject group, first piece of research that's done that's been done at this uh, type of uh, at this type of incline, that it needs more validation. But it would appear to indicate that as the grades get steeper, somehow those two points converge. Yeah, if you took if you took that uh, that difference being zero at, at face value, yes, that would appear that the <laughs> two converge. But yeah, just to expand on on the caveats you said, um, only about half the subjects actually saw that convergence at at the steepest incline. The other half of the subjects, a few of them, their preferred transition speed was. Uh, greater than their energetically optimal and a few transition speed, their energetically optimal is greater than their preferred. So it ended up averaging out uh, to be zero. But if you if you actually looked at the graph and, and looked at how much variance there was, uh, I think it'd be a little irresponsible for me to say, um, you know, we know for certainty that this convergence occurs, uh, you know, in everyone and, and that's just the way it is. So definitely some more research needs to be done on how on how the preferred and energetically optimal speeds, um, how the relationship between the two changes um, on these steeper inclines. Uh, Jackson, you've been schooled well because we we look at this all the time with different training interventions, and it's anything with you know caffeine to a nutritional supplement to altitude, anything that's kind of looked at as an ergogenic aid. And when they're looking at these pools of people, as you just very well described, sometimes the average is 2% better or 1% worse or whatever. But then when you look at the individual subject data, there can be one outlier that influences that average, or it can be a 50-50 split between the, the number of, of subjects that improved versus the number of subjects that showed an actual decrement. And... What, what I always kind of come back to is when you start to see those, when you start to see those kind of like evenly split ergogenic in the, in the ergogenic space, when you start to see those type of evenly split results in the subjects, you're just flipping a coin at that point. And you don't know if this aid is going to work with this particular athlete or it's going to, or it's going to make that worse. We fell into that fallacy a lot in like the early two thousands with altitude training until we started to really scrutinize it a lot more and, turns out half the people can get worse uh, in, a, in, a, in an altitude camp. So anyway, good that, good that you pointed that out. Okay, so let's start to talk about the heart rate data that you collected. Why don't you describe what that looked like, what your hypothesis was of the heart rate data, and then what you actually found out during the research. Right, so uh, heart rate in general does uh, correspond fairly well with energetic cost. Um, and again, you know, the heart rate does have, you know, some variability and, uh, and it's not this, this perfect, uh, metric. And as you've talked about in your book and articles and stuff, I think, um, we know heart rate's not perfect, but it, it does generally do a pretty good job of estimating energetic cost. So we wanted to see if, um, if that would hold true in, on these, on these inclines, because yeah, if, if heart rate can tell you when, when you should switch grades or when you should switch gates, um, to be the most economical, like that would be really cool. Uh, unfortunately, uh, heart rate had too much variability and, um, and wasn't, uh, an accurate enough 
uh, guide or predictor for, for the energetic cost. So, uh, so we, what we had hoped to see, um, was that at, um, was that at speed slower than the energetically optimal transition speed, uh, heart rate would be lower in walking, uh, and then faster than the energetically optimal transition speed. It would be, uh, it'd be the heart rate would then be higher in, in walking. Hopefully I, I said that right. Um, but basically we expected, uh, if we plotted heart rate in walking and running, we expected to see this heart rate optimal transition speed to correspond with the energetically optimal transition speed. And unfortunately we didn't see that, um, heart rate was kind of all over the place, uh, relative to the energetically optimal transition speed. Uh, and thus, you know, it isn't going to, if you're trying to use heart rate to tell you, um, when is the most economical, uh, speed to switch gates at, uh, you shouldn't, it's not going to do a good job. Yeah. And that's, that was a surprise. Yeah. I mean, our, we hypothesized that, that, uh, yeah, we hypothesized the opposite of what we ended up finding. Yeah. And, and so when I looked at it and I haven't expressed this to you yet, I know I, you know, I, I, I attended your presentation and things like that, but when I look at it from a bioenergetic standpoint, one of the things that I take away from that, and we can bat this around a little bit. One of the things that I take away from that is the bioenergetics for somebody running on flat level ground as it correlates to heart rate is different than when they're, than when you're climbing and different running and walking, climbing. Meaning if we were just to say, Jackson, your lactate threshold, we go, we go, we measure in the lab your lactate threshold heart rate, which would be a bioenergetic property, right? Your lactate threshold heart rate is 168 be beats per minute as we've determined in the lab. Your lactate threshold heart rate running up a 20% incline is not gonna be 168 beats per minute. Your lactate threshold heart rate hiking up a 27% incline is not gonna be necessarily 168 beats per minute. As from a coaching standpoint, that was one of the things that I extrapolated from this initial piece of research. And I'm wondering, did you or did your professors have a similar or different uh, extrapolation on that? Or did you, it wasn't even part of it? Uh, yeah, I don't think I've even thought about uh, thought about that. But but no, I think you're you're spot on in saying that. Right. The fact that the fact that heart rate wasn't this good predictor of energetic cost uh, in terms of gait transition yeah, you could totally extrapolate from that, that, um, you know, you're using heart rate to define lactate threshold or VO2 max or whatever. Uh, you know, there's a good chance that's not going to work, uh, on incline terrain if, you know, it was only measured on, on, on flat train in the lab. And I think, you know, even for, if we, you know, take, took another step forward with it, you know, if you have athletes doing schema races or something, uh, and you know, you, there, it's this new sport. They aren't as comfortable with it. You say, Oh, okay. Just, just go off of heart rate. Cause we know this is your, your heart rate in certain, you know, similar efforts on in running. Yeah. It's not necessarily going to work very well. Well, the, actually the analogy, now that you think about it, that I would take from it is that we would never say, okay, your threshold, your heart rate ranges for cycling are a, B and C. We would never say, that your heart rate, your heart rate ranges in running are the exact same A, B, and C as they are in cycling. The analog that we can extend from the research that you did is 
if we have heart rate ranges or if we're using heart rate ranges for running that are A, B, and C, they don't necessarily translate to A, B, and C as the grade goes up and or as you switch from running to walking. It's the exact same problem that we have when we completely switch modalities from cycling to running or from running to schemo. We don't blanketly apply the same heart rate ranges for a whole host of reasons, but it's not as intuitive to take to take that same extension from running on flat level terrain to running and hiking uphill. Yeah, I mean, we we all know and understand that running and cycling or running in schema are different sports, but, but yeah, I mean, even running on flat terrain on roads is to an extent, uh, maybe not entirely a different sport, but, uh, it's, it's not the exact same as running or hiking, um, on steep, you know, uphill terrain. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's funny because the way I think about trail running is I think of it's a mix between backpacking and road running and, you know, backpacking and road running are entirely different sports. Uh, and this, you know, this trail mountain running thing, it's, it's kind of like this halfway different sport than, than this road running that, uh, that a lot of people kind of know and understand. Yeah. It, it, anyway, I mean, I, I've, we've, if I lean on my cycling coaching background, you know, 15 years ago or something like that, we've always applied different heart rate and power ranges to, to a certain extent in a, in a climbing in a, in a climbing situation versus a flat situation. And it for a while that was controversial to do because a watt is a watt is a watt, right? But we started to recognize that just from a practical standpoint, athletes could produce more power climbing than they could on flat level terrain. And therefore their heart rate ranges were a little bit higher climbing than they were on flat level terrain for cycling. <clears throat> it's easy for somebody to say, oh, well, of course you're running, not cycling, they're different sports, so we're going to do things differently. But it's not as intuitive for most people to say, hey, listen, running uphill, especially the steeper the uphill gets, those same heart rate ranges and things like that might not be the same indicators of, of uh, economical cost or the bioenergetics that are actually going on as compared to flat level training. That part to me is actually quite fascinating and like I said, I've hypothesized that for years, but I've never outside of just like personal trials and trials with my athletes and things like that, where we're just dorking around on the treadmill. We really don't have anything to point to it other than just anecdote. Yeah. So, okay. Let's get back down to brass tacks here. So why don't we first, why don't we first kind of go since there's all this like stuff that we now, you know, it's like once you do a study, you find out like 10 things. You're like, oh, man, now I want to know this and now I want to know that. It's the proverbial rabbit hole, right? What What are the proverbial research rabbit holes that you want to go down next based on this initial research that you did? And then what we're going to do is we're going to come back to like the broad recommendations for athletes. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, as you say, you know, there's, there's 10 different places I could go here, but I'm going to limit myself to, cause you know, next year, you know, I'm in the lab, uh, you know, getting my master's, uh, next year, you know, I can't do 10 studies. I'm only going to do one. So, uh, so yeah, I'll, maybe this will, this will help me figure out which one I want to do. But I think, I think looking at the, um, investigating further, this preferred transition speed and energetically optimal transition speed, convergence or just the relationship between the two on these steeper inclines 
that warrants further investigation um, to see if our our finding at our steepest incline that the two were the same uh, was just kind of a result of of dumb luck, or if that's actually um, actually like a legitimate um, a legitimate finding that is just uh, a fact. To, 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 I guess um, so. So yeah, just to see how if if the preferred transition and the energetically optimal transition speeds converge on these steeper inclines, and there's intuitively it makes sense that they would because uh, you know the fitness required and the exertion required to um, to run right at these steeper and steeper inclines gets harder and harder. You know, we can all run on flat terrain. You know, most of us can run at a moderate incline and then very few can run at these super steep inclines. So because energetics, uh, energetic cost is higher um, at the at or near the transition speed on these steeper inclines, it would make sense then that we need to um, we need to uh, care more about economy and energetic cost uh, and maybe even less about biomechanics because at these steeper inclines, if you're running energetic cost becomes this large limiting factor. So investigating if that theory, um, if that theory holds any, you know, holds water, uh, that would be one thing we want to do. Uh, I'd say the, the second thing, um, that I, I really at the forefront, I really want to do, um, would be just getting back to the performance, um, the performance side of things. Uh, you know, as you mentioned pretty early on, okay, we have this preferred transition speed. We have this energetically optimal transition speed, and we really have no idea, uh, you know, which one will, whether switching gates at one or the other will allow us to, um, to perform better, to get up that hill faster. So, uh, if, if it makes sense to, um, transition speeds when we prefer to do so, uh, or let me, let me phrase it a different way. Uh, I think one thing we want to do is perform time to exhaustion tests between running and walking at the energetically optimal transition speed because we could we could put people on a treadmill 15 degrees we know um we know approximately or we could even determine their their energetically optimal transition speed uh and then we could see in which at the same speed which gate um allows them to to go for longer uh and let's you know because that energetically optimal transition speed uh i guess at uh at the more moderate inclines is is greater than the preferred transition speed. You you could you could it makes sense that then the, um, you would last longer running at the energetically optimal transition speed than walking because you know that preferred transition speed is lower. So you would think subjects hate to walk at that energetically optimal um, transition speed. So then they'll they'll, they'll crap out earlier walking. So um, yeah, investigating and that'll kind of start to answer that question. Uh, okay, should we transition closer to our preferred or should we transition closer to energetically optimal transition speed? And then that kind of would give some practical uh, application to, okay, I'm hiking up this hill. You know, is it better for me to switch to running or, you know, is it better to, to stay walking? Because right now, right now we don't know. And, and actually my advisor, uh, Dr. Roger Crom and I, we kind of have a different hypothesis on what we expect to see from, mm. uh, from that uh, future study. That's uh, to be, to be really frank with you. That's the money study. Like that's the one that you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Like coaches, I could take that. I could take the results of that. And if it were, you know, replicated in some form or fashion across different labs and I could directly apply it to athletes and 
a whole host of situa- situations by extrapolating the, the data from the trials and then what I know about my individual athletes and what their threshold is and, you know, things like that, that one. So if, if you're getting a nudge from me, do like, do that one because I can implement it. I, I I'm reminded of, um, this, this, this company that's now owned by training peaks called best bike split, where they have this mathematical model that's based off of physics that will give you a cycling pacing model for any course out there based on power. And the problem and the problem that that cyclists have with time trials is that it's not always in their best interest to evenly pace a time trial based off of power because of this cuboidal res, uh, uh, relationship between wind resistance and speed. So as you go as you try to pedal harder, and you go faster, the amount of wind resistance that you actually are in, uh, encountering is disproportionately re- uh, uh, related to the amount of power that you actually have to produce. And so, and so the practical outcome of that is the slower you're going, the more advantageous it is to produce a little bit more power to squeak out speed gains versus when you're going 50 miles an hour and you, you know, it needs, you need 20% more power to squeak out an extra 10th of a mile per hour. You could take that same. And so anyway, the outcome of that has been kind of like these like power heat maps that, um, uh, that coaches have produced for different races, Ironman races, time trials and things like that, that are basically telling the athletes what the optimal power range is to produce the best result. The analog in trail running could be essentially when to run, when to walk based on that particular athlete and, and the course profile. That's almost what I'm seeing could be developed out of something like this. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, um, it is this, uh, you know, money study as, as you put it, um, you know, doing this, uh, time to exhaustion comparison between running and walking. And not only is, uh, I, I, not only is that it really applicable for coaches and athletes, but it's also, um, it also will give us a, a good understanding of what to do in the future for research. Cause right now we don't know, is it better to chase looking at biomechanical differences at the preferred transition speed, or is it better to, you know, you know, look at, uh, you know, look at metrics more at this energetically optimal transition speed, because ultimately I'm doing this research cause I want to know, you know, when should I walk? When should I run to, race faster. So, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, doing a performance specific study is important to kind of figure out, you know, where do we, where do we go from here? So yeah, I, I'm taking your, your vote into, into consideration for sure as to what we do next year. You'll, you'll have, you'll have, uh, you'll have the first competitive advantage because you'll know the research before it's published, right? Totally selfish on your part. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because, uh, I did a 50k in the fall, and uh, the person I was running with was switching between walking and running based off of what I was doing. Oh, that's and hilarious. I don't, I, I don't think he knew that I'd you know done any of this research. But I was like, damn, I gotta be, I gotta be careful because you know people, if it gets out that I'm doing this research, everyone's just gonna look look to what I'm doing and assume that I know best, which I, I don't think I, I don't. Uh, we're still a long way from knowing, uh, or at least we're, we're, we don't know yet, uh, you know, 
uh, which which is the yeah, best yeah, yeah. Yeah. best date to tune or what best speed to tune? Yeah, out. it's not going to be magic, right? One study is never magic, but I do think that the initial stuff kind of uncovers a lot to 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 go off of. I mean, we still we still lean on research from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, to apply sound training principles to what we do now, even though there's been further research to to dial down on any particular topic. So the initial type of research always has a big influence on what's to come. Um, so let, let's let's leave the listeners, Jackson, with what are the what are the practical recommendations that they should be taking with them out on the trails? If they don't have you to follow and to mimic, like how can runners actually take this and go, okay, what's the, what are the reasonable ways that I can determine the best transition between walking and running and back again? Yeah, you should timestamp this in the podcast so everyone can just skip straight to it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, I think, I think one of the, yeah, I think uh, one of the, the big takeaways is, uh, there's no magic speed and there's also no magic incline at which you should, should switch. You know, I've, I've read plenty of articles, uh, you know, out there that say at X incline, this is when you should start walking. Or if you're moving slower than X speed, this is when you should start walking. And it's not that simple. It's this transition speed because all both transition speeds that we measured were getting slower with incline. It's some combination between incline and speed that determines determines when you should transition gates. So uh, if you're just looking at your watch, um, or you know, if you if you're if you know how steep these inclines are, and you're using, and that's the only thing you're using to determine whether you should walk, that's not a good approach because it's it's this relationship between speed and incline. Um, in terms of yeah, figuring out uh, yeah when when you should switch. Sorry, do you want to say something? No, well, well what I was going to say, this is a failure of audio here. I was like, I, I was kind of throwing my hands up in the air a little bit and indicating that I was going to jump in. <laughs> but um, so we we do this a lot in coaching. We're like, okay, this says to not do this, right? I mean, so you've got the research that says that you're you're absolutely right. There's no magic speed. There's no magic grade. But what people want to know is not only what not to do, right? Not to focus on speed and or grades specifically, but what to actually do. So what do yeah. people actually, what, like what is going to tell them? What can they actually use in the field since we're saying don't use the grade? And if you can determine the grade in the field, great. But you can certainly determine the speed, right? You can turn your watch over and say, okay, I'm doing, you know, 20 minute miles, 24 minute miles or whatever. Since, since we're not advocating for that either. And as your research indicates, heart rate doesn't indicate either one of those. What's the reasonable solution? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's not sexy, but, um, going off of, you know, rate of perceived exertion, going off of your gut, you know, what, what just, what feels the best, because, you know, we've done this research, you know, we could probably create this, you know, multiple regression type equation, uh, with four or five different variables telling you, okay, you know, optimizing these, this is when you should, transition gates, but your brain can run this multiple regression type analysis for hundreds of hundreds of variables. So um, if walking feels feels good, that's what you should be doing. If running feels feels like it's faster, that's what you should be doing. And and really kind of going off of off of RPE, um, 
you know, based on, based off of what, what your brain's telling you is, you know, it's not sexy and it, it, it maybe it's unfortunate that despite all this research we've done, it's, it's still is that simple, but, um, but yeah, there's really not, uh, there's really not anything better out there right now. And, and I definitely think we should think about it, uh, and, and really be, uh, be present when we're, um, you know, when we're climbing these, these hills and, and, you know, maybe transitioning back and forth, uh, you know, throughout, throughout, uh, um, you know, training sessions to kind of, uh, get a feel for, um, for, for the differences, you know, that we're, we're picking up on between gates. Um, but yeah, it's pretty simple. Just, just trust your guide. And, uh, and that's probably the best thing out there right now. It, it's interesting though, because you know, a lot of athletes aren't that intuitive and there's probably some nuance. Like when you're looking at your little sphere of people around you, you know, the five or six people around you in the example that I mentioned earlier, half of them are going to be running and half of them are going to be walking yet. They're all kind of traveling the same speed. But we also know, and, and like I said, there's nuance in that, right? And we could probably tease apart, okay, that person should actually be running and those two people should actually be walking and these people should be walking half the time and running half the time. But some, sometimes from a coaching perspective, we're, we're, we're trying to avoid the bigger negatives, the times where you should clearly not be running and clearly be walking. You're trying to tease out like subtle nuances, right? Like the difference, and I think this is important to, to point out, the, the difference between the energetically preferred transition speed and the prefer, sorry, the, the energetic, the energetically optimal transition speed and the preferred transition speed is how much? It's, uh, I mean, it's dependent on incline speed and but, everything, but, but ballpark, ballpark. Yeah. It's, uh, probably between one and three minutes per mile. Okay. Uh, on, on most inclines. Okay. So we'll split the difference, right? Let's just say it's two minutes per mile. So the sure. difference between like 18 minutes and 20 minutes per mile, we still know some people and everybody sees these people out there on the trails that are running at, or trying to run. This is dependent upon your biomechanical definition of running. They're trying to run at 28, 30 minutes per mile. They've got the little shuffle step going on. So clearly there's some sort of like wiring that is going awry with those people trying, those people that are thinking that a run is better for them than walking. Yeah. So I think a, a lot of people maybe come and a lot of the people that you're describing, they come to the sport from this road running or track running background. Uh, and they're, they're scared to walk, you know, they've, uh, in the, the context of, you know, that, that this road running sport, you know, you, you run every step. So, um, so yeah, I think encouraging athletes, um, to get away from that mentality of running so of that, they need to run everything, uh, is, is, a, is definitely, a good thing to do because yeah, uh, there's, especially in the context of our sport of trail and trail and, uh, mountain running, there's going to be times where it's better to walk for sure. I, I've sometimes given people governors and say, listen, and I know you're not advocating for a specific pace, but like ridiculous governors, like if you're seeing 28 minutes per mile on your watch, I don't care what grade you're at. You need to be walking. You need to be walking on flat level ground at a 28 minute mile and every other inclined after that. 
Right. Unless they're Killian who can run up, you know, a 40 degree, uh, slope, yeah. you know, that, that, that 28 minute mile, you know, probably is best to best for people. Yeah. 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 But you know, outside of the five people that could actually accomplish that on the yeah, face Killian of the earth. You to tell him when, when you should be running and yeah, walking. No, he's got it. He's got, he's got it wired, but I do, I mean, I do find that from a practical perspective as a coach, as much as as much as I like to lean on intuition and rate of perceived exertion and hone it intentionally through the training process and make athletes think about, hey, when are you running? When are you walking? What's your you know what's your RPE during this climb, this descent? I mean, that's that's a big part of my coaching philosophy. I still have athletes that when I go out to the races and I'm standing on the side of the trail and I see them running at a thirty minute mile, I'm just like, God, you're like you need to hike this hill. How can you not figure that out? <laughs> Yeah. And I, and I think it's one of those things that gets better with practice. Like when I first moved to, you know, moved to Boulder and started, started college, you know, I was fresh off of high school cross country. You know, I didn't, I didn't walk. I, I was a runner. Uh, and, you know, slowly through, I think my first two or three years in Boulder, you know, or, originally I would just try to stubbornly run every step of every climb. And, you know, eventually I would try to start walking and, you know, sometimes I'd look at the watch, realize I was getting up these climbs faster, even though I was walking more. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that I think you get better, uh, you get better with practice at, um, and just, just once you realize it's okay to walk, uh, and give yourself permission to walk, then it's, then it becomes easier to tease out, um, when it's, you know, actually when you should be doing one over the other. Uh, but yeah, for people coming from, uh, you know, from the Midwest or whatever, who don't have these monster climbs to practice on, uh, yeah, they're, it's probably pretty hard for them to, to know if they're doing Western States or hard rock or something and haven't been able to train on similar terrain. It's probably hard for them to, to know which one is best. So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I would just advise, you know, don't be scared of walking because there's definitely going to be a lot of times in a lot of races, especially as we move slower and, and as we move slower in these ultras or as we move steeper, uh, that it's, that walking is going to be more efficacious. Well, and to that point, for the athletes that I work with that do live in more mountainous terrain, I'm typically encouraging them to walk more in training so that they have the experience to feel out what that transition point is. Because another problem that we're always faced with in ultra marathoning is that the intensity that we're doing almost every single race at is less than the intensity at which we're going out for a normal endurance run with. And so as a byproduct of that, you're typically overrunning and training and you're walking a bigger proportion of the race as compared to the training that you're doing. So my point with that is, is it's the underdeveloped skill. Walking is the underdeveloped skill. And so you have to intentionally take steps in training to develop that to the extent that you're actually going to need them during the race. And one of the ways that you do that is just encourage more walking. And so you can kind of like feel out that what the right transition point for you is on a variety of different grades. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> walk more and walk more in training and be deliberate about it when you're actually going through these walk to run transitions and training, because it'll help you feel it out during the race. Yeah. Don't, don't be scared of walking. I think there's, I, I'm almost certain there's going to be listeners out there who, who are, are, who are scared of walking and, and I'm just, yeah, it's probably good for them to hear, 
don't be scared. It's, it's, it's okay to do it uh, in the right situation. Cool. All right, Jackson, we'll let you go, get you back to your studies or to spring break or whatever you've got going on. We're, we're recording this in March in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So who knows what's going on uh, before we go though? Uh, two things, where can people reach you on social and what does your calendar look like the rest of the year? Yeah. I mean, like the, the, the COVID is definitely throwing a wrench into, into calendar stuff. Um, so yeah, well, we'll see when races are going to be held again, but, um, I'll, if, if races aren't going to be held for the next couple of months, I'll find some local adventure stuff, um, out the back door that, that are hopefully fun unless they close the trails, which that would be terrifying. But, uh, Hopefully they don't do that. Um, and then I guess on social media, my name's Jackson Brill. So I you can probably find me on Instagram and I'm probably most active on Strava, pun intended. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, man. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the research that you've been doing. Tell Roger I said hi. And uh, you know what my vote is for what comes next. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. That's my two cents. It's probably worth a penny. All right. See you later. Bye. Okay, trail runners, I hope this issue of should you run or should you walk is a whole lot more clear. And the answer to it is, is if you feel like you're going to go faster running, run. If you feel like you're going to go faster walking, walk. That's about how it boils down to. Or if you're trying to conserve yourself, if you feel like you need to conserve yourself more by walking, walk. If you feel like you need to conserve yourself more by running, run. That's kind of the answer. But you can't come to that answer without deliberately training it throughout the course of the training process that you have. I hope everybody takes that away from it. And Jackson was really poignant uh, when he mentioned that there is no magic grade. There is no magic pace uh, for everybody that will indicate when to run and when to walk a particular time or up a particular hill. That's what I really meant to say, up a particular hill. There we go. In any case, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the podcast, you can go and give it a rating on iTunes, give it a like on iTunes, or if you happen to have a little bit of extra time, really let me know what you think. Give a review, type some words down in the, in the uh, comment box. I'll certainly check that out at some point, but it helps, it helps the podcast a lot when we get those likes and we get those reviews. So go ahead and do it. You can also recommend this podcast to a friend. Yeah. If you really like it, recommend it to a friend. I would appreciate it a lot. We've got a lot of cool content coming up in the next several weeks. I've had to jumble it around a little bit with the COVID-19 virus kind of spreading around like wildfire. The production calendar is quite frankly kind of all over the place, but it'll all get sorted out soon, people. This will all be behind us at one point or another. Who knows whether it's going to be weeks or months from now, but life will return back to normal. Until then, I appreciate everybody listening. And eventually at some point, we will see you out on the trails. 